Chop was utopic. No matter how people feel it ended, it began utopically. It was a desire to create a space in which everyone was welcome, regardless of your class or sexuality or race. Welcome to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. I'm Edward Krigsman. Last time we enjoyed a conversation with landscape and urban designer Andrew Tenbrink of New York City-based field operations about Seattle's upcoming 20-acre waterfront park project, which he has managed since 2010. Andrew shared with us the steps the city took to ensure that this new space reflected the aspirations of all of its citizens. Sometimes, however, important civic spaces arise not through careful planning, but spontaneously and chaotically. And rather than permanent fixtures, these spaces can disappear days or weeks later. In today's episode, we explore such a place. In mid-2020, at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, and in the part of the U.S. where that global pandemic erupted, Seattle's Black Lives Matter protesters gathered following the killing of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer on May 25, 2020. One of over 10,000 protests across the country that summer the vast majority of them peaceful. On June 8th of what turned out to be a long, hot summer, some of these protesters took over a roughly six-block area near the city's Cal Anderson Park after the Seattle Police Department abandoned its East Precinct building. These protesters formed the Capitol Hill organized protester CHOP, which became a self-governing community that flourished for about a month until police returned to the precinct, dismantled the barricades, and ended the occupation. Today, there are very few, if any, visible traces of the CHOP. Its monumental storefront murals, its public gardens, its soundstage, its conversation couches, and soup kitchens are long gone. And gone with them are the voices of the hundreds of local protest participants. Through her medium of documentary theater, today's guest is ensuring that this crucial moment in the city's history remains a living, breathing part of our civic memory. A playwright, ethnographer, oral historian, and educator, her current work in progress, 11th and Pine, examines the legacy of the CHOP and the ramifications for its participants based on interviews with Capitol Hill community members. Her current and prior theatrical works incorporate oral histories, press coverage, social media, and other sources to create theatrical works about actual events. She's assistant professor of playwriting in the School of Drama at the University of Washington. And her most recent performances have been staged at Seattle's Erickson Theater, as well as the Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute. They've also been performed at the New College of Florida in Sarasota, the Soroya in LA, the Hammer Theater in San Jose, the Marsh in San Francisco, Lynx Hall in Chicago, and the Chicago Cultural Center. She's also a board member of Story Center, a Berkeley-based nonprofit that uses storytelling for social change. So for today's episode, we'll explore what it was like to establish and live inside one of Seattle's first and possibly last occupied areas. And we'll understand why this vibrant moment in the city's history has virtually disappeared. And stick around at the end of today's episode, we'll learn how documentary theater, as well as an app-based storytelling tool that Nikki will reveal, can help us bring alive our city's history while navigating through it. Let's drive around. So let's welcome our guest today, playwright Nikki Aboa. Hey, Nikki. Hi, Edward. Thanks for having me. It's really lovely to be here. Awesome to have you. 
So a lot of us wind up in the Pacific Northwest for different reasons, and I understand you're relatively new to the area. So we'd love to hear your journey, how you wound up in Seattle. I was actually born in Ghana, West Africa, uh, Kumasi. (laughs) There are any Ghanaians listening? (laughs) And um, my family moved to Canada when I was seven years old. And I spent most of my life in Ontario. But I spent my life in the burbs until I left for graduate school. And I ended up in Chicago. I went to Northwestern to do my PhD in performance studies. And so I never actually thought I would stay in the States, let alone end up in Seattle. I really thought I'm going to go to graduate school, I'm going to get this degree, and I'm going to come back home. Also, there have been varying points in my life where I thought I would return to Ghana and live there permanently as well. When I finished undergrad, I lived there for like a year as a journalist and really thought, you know, I want to make a home here. But when I went to graduate school, I was still undecided. So I set my research there because then Northwestern would pay for me to go back (laughs) and really kind of come to terms with my relationship to the country. Um, And my research was oral history. My research was actually about African-Americans who have decided to live in Ghana out of protest of American racism. And so now in retrospect, I can make the connection between why I was so fascinated by their desires for return, because I too was experiencing something similar, even though I was differently placed, you know. But that research was fascinating, and that's when I fell in love with oral history, actually. And some of that research became performance. And that's when I started to tie the two together. And that's when I kind of fell in love with it. And I've been doing it ever since. So how did you wind up in Seattle? After I graduated, my first job was at San Jose State. And while I was at San Jose State, this opportunity came up at the University of Washington for an assistant professor of playwriting. I thought it was a long shot, like a long, 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 could not be longer shot. Um, But my friends were very encouraging and told me to just try. And I did just try. And two and a half years ago, I moved here to start my new position. So we ask our guests to share a place they care about in the Pacific Northwest. And so, Nikki, what comes to mind for you? So oddly, it's Port Ludlow, (laughs) because my in-law lives there. And so we go there quite often to visit him, uh, my father-in-law. And so it's been this kind of home away from home. I love being by the water, and I love the trees and just how lush everything is. And I love that it takes enough time to get there that you feel like you're really going on a trip, but it's not so long that (laughs) you feel like you can't ever come back. (laughs) So it's just as perfect. From where I live, it's like an hour and a half drive or so. Um, So we could take the ferry, but we like to drive there because I like to see the progression from urban to not urban. (laughs) It's just lovely. You can really, I can feel the stress, you know, kind of just like leaving my body the further out we go. And it's just so quiet there. So can we talk a little bit more about documentary theater, really for our listeners, explain what that is and how it differs from other forms of 
theater traditionally? Yeah, so documentary theater is really kind of theater created from research reality. And that research reality could be an interview, which is where I lean, but it could also be internet searches. <laughs> it could also be like anything archival, journals, books, um, all of that become sources of inspiration. And it runs the gamut really from work that is verbatim, which means all of the lines are taken directly from the source. And my work has tended to skew in that direction at times. And it could be something like the based on a true story <laughs> that, you know, the Hollywood kind of like the crown, which is like mostly true. And also you were never there for that conversation. So you're just filling in those blanks, you know. And so anything that is derived from reality that is rooted in everyday lives of people and experiences, that is documentary theater. So theater, in my mind, is something that should be dramatic and entertaining, but documentary also has associations with just literal reality. So is documentary theater, is there, you know, a mission that it is also entertaining or... Oh, is definitely. Heck yeah. <laughs> We're not trying to bore you. <laughs> um, it is definitely meant to be entertaining. Um, it comes from, you know, it's like the postmodern turn in theater. I would actually consider it at the time it was experimental. People were used to Shakespeare. People were used to kind of realist dramas as well that would come after that followed like a, a formula, you know, a well-made play formula. That's what they would call it. So this was a kind of pushback against the types of theater that we consider traditional. It was a pushback against like, why do we need to have these characters that speak in this particular way? Why does a climax have to go here? Why, you know, it was questioning all of those conventions and also seeing that everyday life is dramatic. Like our lives also feed into what we see on stage and the stage feeds into our lives. So we live our lives based on certain principles and ideas that we get from, from art, from film and television and theater that infuses the way we understand our world and the way we interact with our world and vice versa. We also influence what we see on stage. So those lines are blurry anyway. It was an embrace of the blurriness of the distinction between real life and the stage. So what's a good illustration of this approach from your body of work? Yeah, so The Mothers is a play where I interviewed four women in the Bay Area who had lost children to police violence. Um, I had just moved to the Bay and had chosen to move to the Bay because I thought that it was very liberal and I wouldn't have to worry about those kinds of things. And when I found out that someone had been shot on our campus, shot and killed on, our, on San Jose State's campus, I was, it shook me. And I started digging further into what other stories like this were happening locally. So I met these four women over time and they shared their stories with me and I actually staged it in San Jose for them. But what really um, resonated with me was one woman whose son died a day before their birthday 
their 17th birthday, and she had a party planned for them that she never got to have. It was a surprise party. And so her son went out that night thinking nothing was going to happen the next day. They didn't think their birthday was going to be celebrated. So that kind of lingers for her. It makes her question if she made the right choice, keeping it a surprise. So my play itself is that party. And then the four women gather to share stories of all of their loved ones who have died from police violence. But the whole thing happens as a party being set up. Protests turned destructive in downtown Seattle tonight. Here's what we know as of 10 o'clock. So let's move forward to the summer of 2020 in Seattle. Where were you in the summer? I was not in Seattle. I was in the Bay. I was in Oakland. It was the end of the month when everything started to happen. And my lease was up. And it was the midst of COVID. And so my friends and I prior to knowing all of this was going to happen, had gotten a cabin deep in the woods of California, and we were just going to hunker down for a month. And so while this was all happening, I was in the woods, which was very strange to me, because otherwise I would have been in the streets. Uh, (laughs) And um, I remember there was a dissonance there of like my environment and what I was seeing on TV and what I was talking about with my friends. I was also doing interviews at the time, all of them virtual. It was a very weird, I still find it hard to like articulate what it felt like for me. It felt out of body. It was such a strange time. It was such a strange time. Now to growing concerns about the deadly coronavirus officially it's hitting the U.S. Down Here's what we in know. In order to win this fight, so tonight I am issuing a stay-home order to fight this virus. This is Washington's stay-home, stay-healthy order. So, Nikki, can you describe the moment when you first saw The Chop as an opportunity to write a new play? So I was actually um, sitting at a cafe having brunch with friends on the hill. And I had just moved here and I was talking to them about the fact that that I wasn't here for the chop, but I wish that I had been. It's, it seemed so revolutionary. I remember following it from afar and being like, this is it. This is the move. Like, wow, I can't believe they're really doing this. Um, and we're, I'm here like eating my brunch, eating my brunch. And then she says, well, you know, this was, we're here. This was where it was. And I'm looking around like, that can't be, because this street looks so ritzy right now, you know? (laughs) We're all having like $30 brunches, (laughs) sipping mimosas or whatever we were sipping. It felt really like this could not possibly be the place where a revolution happened, you know? Um, And that was where the seed was first planted. Like, where are the material remnants from CHOP? Because apparently I had been walking all around CHOP this whole time, unknowingly. Um, And it felt weird. And I didn't know if it was an erasure or a silencing or a people have moved on. I just wanted to kind of get behind why there's no residual kind of evidence that anything of this magnitude happened here. For our listeners who may not be as familiar with the CHOP as you are and as I am, can you just give a little bit of a kind of a summary? What was the CHOP? Yeah, it was a protest that turned into an occupation of the Capitol Hill area. So Capitol Hill occupied protest. And 
what it was was this completely organic coming together of people in protest of what had happened to George Floyd. And then, you know, the police ended up evacuating the area that they were protesting. And it sparked the idea of, oh, we're going to stay here. And they did. And they ended up staying there for over a month until they were forced out. And then what were the kind of breadcrumbs that led from that insight that you had, that this is where it happened, but there's no remnant of it, to taking action as a playwright? So I had this conversation with my friend, and then I started asking people, oh, do you, like, did you go to the protest? Do you know anybody else that did? And so I started getting introduced to people or told certain names of people that were involved. And then I realized the scale of this was probably larger than I had ever done before. And so I actually applied for funding with the UW to work with students to collect stories. So I believe there were eight of us, um, undergrads and graduate students that got together. I taught them how to do oral history over the course of the summer, taught them how to do reach out. And we went out and we interviewed close to 30 people. And then I started creating the play. So Nikki, there are other more logical places for the chop to have been created, perhaps in the central area, which is more predominantly black historically, or maybe downtown where the WTO protests occurred. Why did it occur on Capitol Hill? So I do want to say that Everyone focuses on the on the autonomous zone, which was on, on the hill, but people kept protesting outside of that area for the entire time. There were marches done on the south side. Marches were happening everywhere, and that was done on purpose. They didn't want it to be something that the city could ignore by simply, you know, driving around the hill. They wanted people to continue to be reminded that this tragedy had occurred and we need to do better because it also happens here in Seattle, right? Um, So I don't want to diminish that. A lot of the interviewers really wanted to remind people of that. So I feel like it's important that I do as well. Um, What happened specifically with the Autonomous Zone, which is also a name that not everyone agreed with, um, but with the district that was, you know, the boundary that was set around the precinct was that some of it was uh, serendipitous, which is that the police left. And prior to them leaving, there had been a real push. They had just wanted to march past the precinct. So there was, a, there was a route for the protesters to march, and that involved them walking past the precinct. And the police refused to let that happen because they had heard that in Minneapolis, a precinct was set in, on fire when that happened. And so they were afraid that that would happen. The protesters were insistent. That is not what we're trying to do here. This is a peaceful march. We just want to be able to exercise our right to march through the city. And so for a long time, there was a standoff there. So it became a place of tension when it wasn't ever meant to be. (laughs) It was just meant to be a path on the route. And so after the tensions escalated, the police decided to leave. And when they left the protesters decided to stay. I want to reiterate what I have said. I support peaceful demonstrations, Black Lives Matter, and I too want to help propel this movement forward. 
toward meaningful exchange in our community and meaningful change in our community. But enough is enough. Do you know why the police decided to leave? Because that was a very unusual decision. It's one of those things that nobody wants to own up to. Everyone has passed the buck on that. Some people say that the chief ordered it. The chief says the mayor ordered it. Nobody knows. No one wants to claim responsibility of what was probably the worst decision any city has ever made. It did de-escalate things, not having the police there, right? That was the intention behind it, was to de-escalate. Whoever made the order, the intention behind it was to de-escalate. Because at the time, it was, I mean, the police were acting irrationally um, and violently. And it was also, there was a lot of anxiety amongst protesters. Um, And so after that night, the police then decided, okay, we're going to de-escalate. And that's why they left. Also, they were not supposed to stay gone. It was supposed to be a temporary measure. And somehow, a month later, they were still not there, you know. So the protesters at first didn't even know what was going on. They didn't ask them to leave. (laughs) It was just, we asked you to walk through and now you're gone. So um, it took them a while to realize, oh, they're not coming back? Oh, okay, well then, yeah, we're here. We're going to protest here. And then uh, in a, a zone... Uh, a boundaried space <laughs> was created kind of organically after that. Okay, and then barricades were brought in. And uh, the barricades were brought in mainly for their safety. Mm. Again, it wasn't about like, this is our land now. It was also about people were threatening to kill them, you know? And this is, we're talking Trump era, um, an era that we're still in. <laughs> but um, they started putting up barricades that, by the way, the police set up initially when they were trying to prevent them from crossing. They just kind of moved those barricades <laughs> to protect themselves from outside forces. And again, this this is like the kinds of decisions. These are the micro decisions that end up with like a macro result. These people have taken over a vast part, a major part, a very good part of a place called Seattle. Seattle's big stuff. That's a major city. And by the way, these are violent people that took it over. I saw what went on with the hitting and the punching and the beating and all the other things going on in Seattle. And you have a governor that doesn't do a damn thing about it. And you have a mayor that doesn't know she's alive. Now, if they don't do the job, I'll do the job. And I've already spoken to the attorney general about it. But if they don't do the job, we will do the job. Were you aware of the kind of the national media coverage? Oh, yeah. I mean, the the National Guard came down. So <laughs> the coverage was very much like, here are some unruly anarchists who have taken over a territory and within the confines of the territory they've taken over. It's just drug abuse and sex and violence. <laughs> um, and there was a lot of back and forth between the protesters and Trump Um I think he was he was using it as yet another way in which he could, you know, stir up some turmoil and and create further divisions as if we needed that. Um, And so a lot of the coverage was was very negative. Um, But because I have been in protests before and because I've, you know, kind of studied police violence, et cetera, I wasn't taking that too seriously, to be honest. I was I was very much aware that there must be something else behind this. So despite the negative publicity, I felt it was a win for the left. 
<laughs> I felt like, yes, this is what I wish we could do here. And so that is also what was behind my curiosity, because I did feel like this is something worthwhile. So you gathered funding and a team together. So what were the first steps? So for the team, it was actually quite simple, just a call out to students, who, whoever was interested. I interviewed some students and accepted some of them. And, and then we prepared by doing first background research on it. So we actually went back to the news archives, both I would have them divided up. You're studying like international news coverage of this. You're looking at national news coverage and you're looking at local. And so there was that. There was a social media team. Someone was looking at Twitter. Someone was looking at YouTube. Someone was looking at Insta. And through that, you started to see that certain names kept popping up, right? This person was interviewed by the New York Times, BBC, and The Stranger. That's definitely someone we should know kind of thing. So... Through that, you were able to find out who we should know, who we should talk to. So we created a list. We created a huge long list. We would see reports of, you know, anyone that made it to a source that we were studying, we would be like, all right, <laughs> let's put their name down. And then we had to find out how do we contact them? Like, is this a person that we can just DM, slide into their DMs? Or do they own a business? Then we should go to the business and ask them. Or is there some, for some reason, an email address of theirs available online? So we found out how we could reach out to them. And we also just literally flyered. Because there were certain people, like the homeless population in Seattle, we wanted to know how they experienced it on the Hill, right? And so we flyered and actually went up to people and said, hey, were you here around that time? I had students doing that kind of legwork as well. And that's how we did the reach out. And a lot of people said no. <laughs> A lot of people are like, no, I don't want to talk to you or your students. Um, and then a lot of people said yes, but then our schedules couldn't align. Um, and then a lot of people said yes, that it actually, everything kind of fell into place. And those are the 30 or so voices that you hear on the show. Can you share who some of those people were and what they had to say? Yeah. Dan Gregory was one of them. Um, Dan Gregory was shot by this guy who tried to run chop protesters over with his car. He actually stopped the car from hitting the protesters, like grabbed the wheel and like swerved it. But the guy also shot him. So he was all over the news at the time. And we were able to get his contact information and reach out. And um, he's a truly inspirational person. Um, How so? I mean, not just what he did in that moment. It's interesting, like, when you hear people's stories or w when you get to know someone better, you realize that moments aren't isolated. You know, it wasn't like a moment of bravery. He's a kind person every single day. And in that moment, it was captured. I felt like it was a curse and a blessing at the same time that I had to get injured to be able to get my word across. But... I know I did what was right, and I was standing, I would do it again, too. I would do it again. I also met with Marshall, leader of the Marshall Law Band. 
And he and I had a really great interview because he was there playing music throughout. And art, and especially music and civil rights movements have like a history, a very well-known history. And his father and his uncles had been part of civil rights protests in the past. So this for him felt like this moment where he could walk in their shoes, felt like he could finally understand what they went through. And his family was so supportive of him and they were so proud of him. And he was there like, you know, singing while they were being, you know, where they were being smoked out kind of <laughs> thing. And his voice is going and, and, and he was in fact there when Dan Gregory was shot. You know, like he was there almost around the clock um, trying to keep people's hopes up. That was unique. Like the type of love and unity that was going on in that and as well as the willingness to do the amount of extremes and like, we played till like three in the morning. Protesters were everywhere. And they were so dedicated towards the situation. Like I basically was on the mic just saying like, I'm not going anywhere. Like, I'm gonna stay here, whatever happens, like happens. Like, and that was like a really like powerful moment because it felt like, wow, these people are ready to like, use their bodies to protect what we're doing out here so we can keep the music going and keep the like, the heartbeat going and try to keep the protest on. Any other voices that you recall? Yeah, Aubriana Inda. Um, she was flash bombed in the chest and went into cardiac arrest. And I mean, hearing her story of coming in and out of like lucidness, you know. You know, you open your eyes and you're on the ground. You open your eyes again and you're in the elevator, like doing someone's doing chest compressions on you. You open your eyes again and there's a tube down your throat. Like this was how she remembers that moment. And for me, it was really striking because I was introduced to her story like in a newspaper. So it felt like a moment in the newspaper. But when you talk to her you can see how that moment plays out over the course of days and, in fact, weeks, right? She comes back to the protests a few days later because this, in fact, invigorates her. But then all of a sudden she's, like, in the public eye, which she had never anticipated and never wanted. And all of a sudden there are cameras in your face and you have to speak a certain way and act a certain way and... People are asking invasive questions and people are digging up dirt on you. And the ripple of that moment in her life thereafter is still something that she's like wrestling with. So you mentioned there was outreach to people that didn't have housing. Do you recall any of their stories? There was one person who actually had, just in the days leading up to CHOP, uh, a good friend of his had OD'd. And he was carrying a lot of grief when it happened. And I think for him, the coming together of people around the, the murder of somebody else, but nevertheless a death, allowed him to channel 
his grief into something more, into something bigger. And the amount of support and just like um, people seeing you, you know, people saw him during that time. There was a lot of initiatives for those that were unhoused at that time. They were in a community of other people that were living in tents, et cetera, and they were welcomed. They weren't shunned. And so it gave a different kind of purpose to his everyday, which, especially coming out of grief, was really important for him. Like in North Korea on Puget Sound, we can only guess snippets of information leak out, supplemented by daring acts of investigation. We have one such foray tonight. Our own Kyle Rothenberg ventured in to the nation, formerly known as downtown Seattle. Here's what he found. So as I recall, the CHOP protesters asked for three things. They wanted the city to cut Seattle's $400 million police budget by half. They asked to shift funding to community programs and services in historically black communities. And then finally, they asked that protesters not be charged with crimes. Is that what you learned? Yes. The city agreed to that first one, cutting the budget. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then they took it back, didn't they? They did, They yeah. did. Um, and then the funneling of money towards Black organizations and Black communities. I've seen it happening painfully, slowly, barely a trickle. But since being here, I have seen some support. I interviewed someone else she was one of the artists that painted the mural, the BLM mural. And they were saying basically that, you know, even that they feel like is drying up. Like the financial support of just keeping the mural there, um, there's less and less interest every year. Can you describe the mural? Because it's quite impressive in scale. It's a monumental piece of art. Yeah. It's at 10th and Pine for anyone that hasn't been there. And it says Black Lives Matter. It's painted on the street, the actual street. And each letter is a different artist that painted it. And it's just beautiful. It's just this beautiful, vibrant, artistic coming together of members of the Seattle community. And you can, it's so big, you can like see it from the sky. You know, it occurred to you that this is, it was a very ephemeral, that it was very important historically, kind of a watershed in Seattle, very important for the Black Lives Matter movement, just a moment in time during COVID, but yet the traces are disappearing very quickly. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, that was at the heart of this research to begin with, trying to figure out, is this like a purposeful silencing? Is it a forgetting or is it an erasure? And I think there are a lot of factors at work. I think that a lot of those that protested gave their everything to it. They feel burned by what happened, you know? It ended suddenly and violently. And a lot of their demands, the city at first was like, yeah. And then they, t they took them back. So they don't even see kind of the afterlife of their efforts. Mm. And so much happened that was both traumatic and, you know, revolutionary there for a lot of the protesters that they want to move on, you know, they want to move on. And so there is a sense of a desire to put this behind them, to put the pain 
and and the betrayal, the, the way they feel betrayed by the city behind them. But there is also, you know, the city is on purpose not commemorating it, not memorializing it. The city also wants to move on. They don't want to be known as a city that's revolutionary. <laughs> they want tech dollars and all of that. And so there is um, erasure happening in that sense as well. And then there's also the sense of like, much more, I don't know, like upper middle class Capitol Hill inhabitants putting up YouTube videos, like just devastated that their community had turned to shit, you know, (laughs) just like, this is not what I'm paying my tax dollars toward. And just, you know, um, and they're the desirable (laughs) uh, inhabitants, or I don't even know how to put it. You know, they're they're the kinds of people that a city that wants to make money wants to attract. And so that kind of publicity was not good for Seattle. And so there is not a desire to remind people of this, right? There is a desire to pretend it never happened. So the zone was compared by some like sociologists to like revolutionary movements like the Paris Commune. And then also other people have compared it to the Zapatistas in southern Mexico that have taken over land and basically set up their own government kind of in protest. So I'm wondering to what extent the people, you know, you spoke with, you interviewed these folks, did they see themselves in any self-conscious way as part of a tradition of? I mean, they certainly saw themselves as part of a local tradition. They saw themselves, I mean, there was a WTO in the 90s. And then in between that and the protests that we had seen, there was Occupy. They definitely felt like Seattle has a tradition of taking a stance, a strong and leftist stance against capitalism and greed and abuses of power. And so a lot of people referenced feeling connected to that and feeling like empowered by that. That area also has been historically kind of a LGBTQ friendly community. Did that play any role in terms of the place where this occurred? Yeah, so because of this change, there was definitely a desire to take back their community. Um, I think that it was both, yes, the police left and also Capitol Hill had become a place they didn't recognize. And CHOP was utopic, you know? No matter how people feel it ended, it began utopically. It was a desire to create a space in which everyone was welcome, regardless of your class or sexuality or race. And that was what Capitol Hill historically had also symbolized. And so there was a desire to return to what that community used to be. What were the utopic elements that you discovered in the vision of the protesters? Yeah, so many. There was the mutual aid, the handing out of free food and clothing. I mean, people came together that were nurses and and doctors, and they would help on the medical front. There was this space that had been set up for people to have open and honest dialogue with each other about race in this city. 
I mean, there was just so many ways in which they were trying to create a community that was supportive of one another and that was self-sustaining and could be done so free of the kind of oppressions of capitalism. So how will this production, 11th and Pine, express those hopes and dreams, the hopes and dreams of the protesters? I think it's in there. So you get a real sense of how it was formed in there, the kinds of questions they were asking themselves. And in getting their perspective on how the protests came up and how it became an occupation, you hear their utopic dreams coming to fruition. I will say, too, that the play is in two acts. And the first act is all of the protests that happened before the occupation. A lot of people also express strongly that all that gets talked about is the occupation. But prior to that, there was over a week, I think two weeks of protest that aligned more with some people's values than the occupation did. Some people were there for the protest and did not agree with the occupation. They felt like it changed the narrative completely from what they felt was important, which was racial justice. And so I do want to highlight the fact that Before the occupation, during the occupation, and after the occupation, there was continued protests that had nothing to do with the zone whatsoever. Because I think it's important for a lot of people to realize that the occupation, some felt, was a distraction from what they felt was the genesis of all this. So tell us a little bit about the process now going forward. You had this idea. You really conducted a lot of research, spent time with people that were participants, and then you had a staged reading some time ago. So how did that go? Yeah, so documentary theater doesn't always take all of the steps that I take, which is that after the interview, I often write a draft, show it to the people that I interviewed take on their critiques of it, write another draft. And that process happened in the case of 11th and Pine. I did a stage reading just for those that I interviewed twice. So I did these Zoom readings with actors twice privately just for the people that I interviewed. And then I opened it up on the third iteration to everyone in Seattle Um, And again, I felt like this is the community story and I'm not from here. I had just recently moved here and I wanted them to feel like what I wrote represented what they remembered, what their experience was. And so what happened at the Erickson Theater, those three or four nights of readings was meant to get the community's input and Prior to that, there had been two other smaller readings. And after the first reading, I did significant rewrites because they didn't like how they were being represented. Why not? They felt like I was giving the mayor and the police chief too much time in the play. They had been main characters in the first iteration. 
And they felt like, you know what, at the time the protests were happening, they got all of the limelight. They struggled, protesters struggled to have their voices heard. And they had hoped that in talking to me, they would finally have their voices heard. And here I was creating space for these people that had taken up all the space earlier. And so they didn't like the fact that, you know, the mayor and police chief were featured so heavily. And I totally understood. It made sense. As a writer, I was like, oh, these are strong characters. Let me put them in there. They provide tension and conflict. But as a person who's sharing their story with you in the hopes of getting, you know, of having people finally see their side, it felt like a betrayal. Mm. So after the first reading, I made substantial changes and got rid of a lot of, of the content related to them. They liked that much better. And then I went ahead, did some more minor revisions. And then last March at the Ericsson, that's what the public saw. So, Nikki, we always ask our guests to bring an item to share. And I see something large and impressive on the table there. What do you have? So this was my mother's scrapbook when she was in high school in Ghana in the 70s. A lot of the pictures, as you can see, have fallen out. <laughs> They're here. But um, it's this beautiful kind of scrapbook that she created. And it just leaves me nostalgic for what I never experienced <laughs> um, and it's just this beautiful like this is what they used to wear um, and you know little teenage dream sweetheart it says in one of them it's pictures of her and her friends like posing at school and stuff a lot of black and white images um, this was during the black power movement and I had no idea until I saw this scrapbook but people in Ghana were also seeing this kind of stuff. So some of the pages say like black is beautiful, black is prosperous, this kind of oh. stuff. And they have huge afros and they're wearing those like heeled shoes, et cetera. Um, and bell bottoms, this kind of stuff. So I've always loved this scrapbook. And in fact, my mother's always like, can I have it back? And I have not given it back to her. It's beautiful. Uh, <laughs> it's really gorgeous. Um, and her friends love that she kept it because a lot of them don't have images from when they were younger. And so I've had to take several pictures of her friends and like sent it over WhatsApp so that um, she could be like, you know, Winnie, remember this day, et cetera. <laughs> yeah. So that's the beautiful the object. We're never, never gonna go backward, brothers. And then when will the play be finalized and performed? I'm collaborating with a colleague of mine who currently has an app-based storytelling platform called Trail Off, where people can walk through trails and hear stories. And we got to thinking, actually, what if people were able to walk through CHOP? and hear stories. We're able to walk through Capitol Hill. We're able to walk through Westlake, which is where a lot of the protests started. What if we took it out of the theater space 
and made it more accessible to the people that shared their stories and also create a kind of virtual memorial of what happened so that people can walk in these spaces that have so radically transformed since then and be reminded of the fact that revolution happened here. I love the idea of using a storytelling app like Trailoff to make cities living museums, and I can't wait to hear its adaptation of your play. Thanks so much for being our guest today, Nikki. Uh, besides waiting for Levinth and Pine's debut on Trailoff, how can our listeners learn more about you? I would definitely encourage you to drop by the UW. I'm at the School of Drama. Come say hi. Would love to meet you. Um, and also I have a website, NikkiYeboah.com, and my last name, Yeboah, is spelled Y-E-B-O-A-H. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, Jesus Christ made Seattle under protest. He didn't want to, but the city planners know best. I walk. Join us next time for a conversation with Colleen Echohawk, an enrolled member of the Katheki Band of the Pawnee Nation and a member of the Upper Athabascan people of Mentasta Lake. Colleen is CEO of native lifestyle brand Eighth Generation, owned by the Snoqualmie Tribe and with its flagship store located steps from Pike Place Market in downtown Seattle. Colleen's goal as CEO is to make 8th Gen a global brand. Prior to leading 8th Gen, Colleen served the urban native community as executive director of the Chief Seattle Club. Widely recognized as one of Seattle's most influential people by local media, Colleen is a mesmerizing storyteller, so you won't want to miss our next episode. Thank you for joining us today. Audio engineering and sound design by Daniel Gunther, with photography by Travis Lawton administrative support from Mary Mansour, and theme music by Toma Nakayama and performed by Grant Hallway, with additional music from Andrew Weathers and Ark's duo. And for this episode, a big thanks to Marshall Hugh of the Marshall Law Band and to Marabi Kukathis. We record on Coast Salish land at the Jack Straw Cultural Center in Seattle's University District. I'm Edward Krigsman, and you've been listening to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review or subscribe. It helps others to find us. And if you know of a place in the Pacific Northwest that matters to you, please tell us about it. We'd love to share your stories. Oh, Jesus Christ made Seattle under protest. He didn't want to, but the city planners know best. I walk through the city, a home not quite my own. Carrying my cross, don't want to carry it alone.